that 1945, it wasn't Graham that looked like he was going to be the world changer. It was actually Templeton. Uh, in fact, in uh, 1946, the National Association of Evangelicals published an article that, that basically said over the last five years, or the five years previous to 1946, that no man known to them had been more effectively used by God in the world than Templeton. Uh, no mention of Graham in the article at all. He, he was nowhere to be found, and yet um, by um, 1950, Templeton had completely left the ministry altogether. He had given up ministry, uh, left Christian orthodoxy, and, and began to do television spots and radio ads. And, and yet even Templeton, for all of his, um, all, all of his gift mix, was still um, not kind of the golden boy. The golden boy uh, was 25-year-old Braun, and, and you would think with a name like Braun, you, you would be... Um, gifted and all that, that Braun was. Uh, and, it, and it said here, I'm, I'm just reading quotes, uh, at the age of 25, Braun has touched more lives and set more attendance records than any clergyman of his age in American history. And yet, by 1954, Clifford had lost his family, his ministry, and his health because of alcoholism and financial irresponsibility. He had left his wife with their two Down syndrome children, and by the age of 35, died of cirrhosis of the liver in a shady, rundown motel room on the outskirts of Amarillo, Texas. And that's why the only name you know of on that list is Billy Graham. Now, I, I, I wish this was just history. I wish this wasn't some of my experience. When I first arrived at the village, the only other pastor uh, on staff... Um, came into my office and said, hey, I know when guys get jobs, um, they, they like to bring in their own staff. And so I've got an offer from another church right down the road. Uh, and so I'm willing um, to leave and let you hire your own guy. And I'll, uh, I'll just go do my deal. And I just thought that was impressive. And so I said, well, what is it in the long term you want to do? And he said, well, I, I really feel called by God to plant a church. And so, I mean, so now he's speaking my love language, all right, sarcasm and church planning. And so uh, I, I immediately said, well, how about this? How about you give me two or three years? I'll just walk right alongside of you and, and let's plant you. Where do you want to plant? He's like, oh, I'm thinking maybe Golden Triangle, Raleigh, um, Durham area, North Carolina. And, um, and so we just started kind of preparing the way to plant a church. In fact, the reason I'm in Acts 29 is because of that conversation. I'm Southern Baptist. The Southern Baptists at that time um, were failing miserably at church planting. And so uh, we just weren't going that route. Uh, and so I had him research who's doing this well, um, who's succeeding, who's can, who can help us roll you out in a way that's healthy and life-giving and well, you'll have the support and where we won't fail, brother, I don't want to fail you. And um, and so he came back and he was like, man, there's this group up in Seattle. I think they're a bit brash. I think you'll like them. Uh, and, and that's, that's it. Never heard of Mark Driscoll. Never heard of Acts 29. I was born outside of Seattle, so knew that part of the country. And um, so uh, we sent uh, this man up to Seattle to go to a boot camp. Uh, he ends up at dinner with Driscoll. And, and, and so they're asking, um, you know, Driscoll's going around the room asking everybody what they do. They're almost all student ministers. And, and, and as they walked around, you know, everybody, according to this pastor, had the same narrative uh, about how each of the youth ministers like, my pastor sucks, you know, know what he's doing. Uh, I, I just feel like I'm so constrained and I'm so... Uh, and then it got to Barry and, and Barry's like, my pastor's 29. We've grown by a thousand this year and he's the one that sent me. 
And so Driscoll's like, I want his phone number. And then he called me. And, and I'm going to be straight, all cards and not, I've said this before. The first time I met Driscoll, I, I thought, is this guy serious? <laughs> like, I just didn't think we would get on at all. All right? I just thought, like, I didn't know what to do with him. Uh, but he, he invited me up to Seattle. And so I flew up to Seattle and, and preached a message there about replanting because I'd gone into an existing dying congregation and tried to shift it uh, philosophically and theologically. And, and the Lord had granted us um, some success in that. And so I kind of told my story there. Um, and seeing him in that context, I was like, oh, okay, he, he makes sense to me now. Uh, and Driscoll and I hit it off and, and became good friends and, and came back and we began to work towards planting um, this young man. And, and we did it the way we do it at the village. In fact, we, we let him preach quite a bit at the village. We let him build up a core team out of the village and then he was going to move all the way to North Carolina when when we kind of sat down I was like why would you why would you do that I mean we've got a couple thousand people here in the Metroplex why don't you just roll out you'll be close enough for us to walk alongside of you and coach you you'll be close enough for for us to intervene if something goes wrong and, and so he, he said, you know what, that sounds much better, um, and actually stayed in the area and planted uh, a church just not far from us at all. And um, uh, within a year, we, we started seeing some things that were concerning us. Uh, and so I, I, I kind of sat him down and, and had the type of hard conversations that God help us we have to have over and over and over again in Christian ministry and pled with him over some areas of his life. And pleaded with him to see what the word says and what right living is. And, and felt a bit blown off by him, which if I'm straight pissed me off. And, and then we just began to watch these weird kind of patterns develop in his life. And it didn't matter who said it or how much we said it. He, he just seemed the, to lack the ability to hear from us anymore. Smarter than us. Uh, knows what he's doing better than us. Um, and then before long, uh, actually a, a couple of years later, a group of his elders uh, approached us. And, and said there had been some embezzlement, there had been some other errors, and that they were going to um, move um, to fire him uh, and, and wanted us to kind of get involved. And, and so we got involved by the invitation of uh, the elders. We tried to, uh, as a type of external body, look into all of um, the, the mess, and, and it turned out that uh, we felt that it was a good, right decision to remove him. And uh, they removed him. And he, I, I was kind of going, okay, what's next? You know, where, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? And he was like, well, I've got some, you know, these are the opportunities I have. And, um, and, and then I, I was out of the, the country um, when I got the call that he had taken a ton of sleeping pills and was in ICU. And by the time I got home, uh, he was gone left his wife and two young children and a devastated congregation and a mother church reeling. And I, I could point to others. Like these disappearances, these men of God that strong start strong out of the gate or what appears to be men of God um, starting strong out of the gate, they fall, they break apart. I mean, the scriptures are littered with them, are they not? Like, what about King Uzziah, right? Second Chronicles 26. A man who was trained in the fear of the Lord by Zechariah, who had learned the good and the bad from his father, who had um, built 
cities and set up towers and created armies and led men and grew proud to his own destruction? Like, you need to know more about Uzziah than just in the year that he died, Isaiah went up to the temple. I mean, does not Paul mention men by name who fell to the wayside? They became enemies of the gospel. During this season, I uh, was mowing my backyard, and I, it, that was right about the time the iPhone kind of hit, and I'm late adopter, always late adopter. So I had my iPod and was mowing the lawn and was listening to Lecrae's like, second album, I think, um, and, and was just mowing my lawn. And, and all I had, like all I had, it was just... I just started saying over and over again, I don't have to carry this. I don't, you're going to have to carry this. I can't carry this. And I just mowed my lawn and just confessed to the Lord, I don't have it in me. I can't carry this. I, I can't do this. And so the way I want to end is just by trying to encourage you to be faithful to the end. And to be aware, brothers and sisters, that we are absolutely in danger. Some of us, the eternal kind. The writer of Hebrews would say it this way, Take care, my brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, what I want to do is I want us to look at Paul, who's ending well his ministry, writing back to Timothy, pastoring the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus was a kind of sexy church in its beginning, but we know how it ends in Revelation 2, correct? And, And so for all of the explosive growth in the beginning, it ends bad. And so Paul in prison, knows his time is up, is writing back to his, I'll I'll just say it, his favorite disciple. And here's what he says, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Guys mentioned it. uh, Leonce was preaching right up to it earlier uh, yesterday. Here's the charge given to Timothy. We're going to look at the charge. We're going to look at the climate. We're going to look at the calling. And then we're finally going to look at the, the climax. So here's the charge. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. So there's, there's nothing left to charge him by. Not, nothing. There, there's nothing else. It's not like, I swear on my mama. All right? There's nothing left. All right, God, Jesus, the living and the dead, the resurrection and the kingdom charge you with all, with all of that. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, um, the structure of this text, if if we had time, again, I wanted to go short. So if we looked at the build out of the Greek, it's preach the word. And everything that follows it is how we're to do that. So everything behind this isn't um, multiple points. It's preach the word. Okay, how do I preach the word? And so in this context, preach the word is preach the gospel. Let the good news go out. Now, how? How are we to do that? Well, we see in this be prepared all of the varied tasks of ministry and not merely the word of preaching. 
the act of teaching. And, and so going back to what Tim has said in his first session, that we are to be gospel men and to proclaim the gospel, not just on Sundays and on stage. How we handle all of life, in season, out of season, when people are receptive and when they're not, and in how we handle our staff, in how we handle new initiatives, in how we handle uh, the squeaky wheels in our church. You know what I mean by squeaky wheels? Uh, has anybody ever left your church and it's made you excited that they left? <laughs> like there are some people that have left and it's hurt me. And there have been some people that have left and I have felt that that was an answer to prayer. <laughs> and I've even asked a couple of people that are still at the village why they're still here. This is preach the word. In season and out of season. That means we are to reprove. That means we're to correct Error with reasoned arguments. That, that's what Leonce did this, all right? Um, we are to, you are to rebuke, correct, strain people when needed, and you are to exhort, to give hope, to encourage, to speak life into. And so what's the call, right? The, the call, the charge, preach the word. Preach the word. And then from there, we look at the climate. Here's where we're going to be doing that preaching of the word. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm... I'm, I'm in Dallas. They're all around me. And I'm not talking about just churches with kind of a wobbly wheel. Uh, I'm talking about beyond the gospel. Like not Christian churches regardless of that cross on your building. And, and here's what's crazy to me. It, for, for all the frustration over false teachers, according to the text, it's God's judgment on the people who long for such teaching that raises these fools up. The judgment of God on people who don't want sound doctrine. They want their ears tickled. They don't want what's true and right. They want pixie dust. And there's a lot of money to be had in shoveling pixie dust. I mean, I watch some of these fools and I just think, man, if it wasn't for regeneration, I could be a billionaire. Because I can play that game all day. I could act that part all day long. So praise God for his mercy. That's the climate. So the, the charge, preach the word, the climate, broken, not wanting sound teaching. People are going to accumulate for themselves. So when, when you see a, a liberal church kind of blowing up around you, and you're going, what in the world? What in the world? There you go. That, that's what's happening. Right, that's what's happening. And then here's the calling, and here's where I want to spend our time, because if we will lead until the end, this is where we must grow some roots. And so look here then at verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. If we're going to lead well to the end, that this is where we need to camp out. These are skills that need to be developed. And so here's the first one. Be sober-minded. So it can literally be translated, keep your head. All right? Keep your head. Be watchful, be mindful, don't get lulled to sleep, and, and you can also um, pull out of this a calmness of spirit, a type of steadiness regardless of the weather, a type of steadiness regardless 
of the weather. So um, I, I would, in this idea of calmness of spirit, I would talk about soul care. We're going to be leaders to the end, but there must be some concept of caring for our souls via the word of God and glad submission to the Holy Spirit. Um, so one of the things that's become clear, e- even in some of the talks and in some of the rooms I've been in where we've just had Q&As, is that ministry is hard and we grow weary and how do we keep up this pace and how long can I grind it out and how are we to... And I think these are all really, really good questions, but just a, a few things on calmness of spirit, being sober-minded, that I want to chat with you about. Um, one, I, I think you need to be serious about rest. And when I say serious about rest, I'm not talking about you taking three days off and going to the beach. Not that that's a bad idea, but can we be straight real quick? Uh, How many of you have been on vacation and come home more tired or just as tired? Okay, so um, lying on the beach and, and reading a book might not create the kind of rest that our soul needs. I'm not saying that's a bad plan. I'm saying what you need, what I need is to find my rest in Christ. So as that day I'm mowing my lawn and I'm just saying over and over and over again as if it were a tongue from the Holy Spirit, I don't have to carry this. I don't have to carry this. You've got this. I don't have to carry this. I am allowing the Holy Spirit to pull me into my union with Christ where I can find rest in Him. Everything else is escapism. Everything else is escapism. I will not run to a week off to find rest for my soul unless that week off there's a concentrated plan to push in to Jesus Christ. Push into His promises. Push in to the Holy Spirit. Now, you can find rest for your body. You you might even be able to find a little rest for your mind. But it's my soul that grows weary in ministry. It isn't my mind that grows weary. It's my soul. It's not always my body. It's my soul. I can go to sleep soul weary and get 10 hours sleep and wake up more tired. It's my soul that needs to be ministered to. The beach can't do that. The mountains can't do that unless the beach and the mountains, once again, get me caught up in majesty. That's the only way that works. Rest. And here's the second one. Pay attention to your heart. And and here's what I mean by that. Um, I would plead with you like Paul pled, to take every captive, every thought captive unto Christ. So, so if I could tease that out here, I would be extremely violent towards evil thoughts in your head. I would be aggressively violent towards sinful, proud, lustful, lazy, fill-in-the-blank thoughts in your head. I'm telling you, you let that seed fall on ground and it grows. Be violent towards the thoughts in your head. Be pay, but you're not going to do that unless you're paying attention. Because going back to last night, you, you have some things left in some residual flesh in you that, that's hungry for fleshly things. Money's not a bad thing, but it makes a terrible God.
power and success, those aren't bad desires. They just make really crummy gods. And as God just unpacked, they'll corrupt, they'll destroy. Watch your thoughts. Guard them. Be violent towards them. Um, I've oftentimes used the illustration of um, when animals attack and that show when animals attack and uh, the story of the lion attacking the bikini model and then they, they interview um, the, the trainer and he's like, I just never saw that coming. And I thought to myself, I saw it coming because it was a lion and a woman. And they're on different spots in the food chain. And so surely this was eventually going to happen. And I think way too many of us, the thoughts of our mind, the lust of our heart, the desires that are not lined up in accordance with the word, we give way too much space. Because we're not doing them, right? I mean, I'm not cheating on my spouse. I haven't done that. I haven't touched another woman. I haven't allowed another man to touch me. I mean, sure, in my head, I'm imagining what life would be like with this man instead of the one I'm married to. Or, or sure, I, I am having thoughts about touching her, but I haven't done it. And we justify. And the seed goes into the ground. And I'm not demanding I make more money. I just think I should. And I'm not demanding I be honored. I just feel like I should be honored. Then we begin to think about how ungrateful people are and all that I do. And all of a sudden, I'm an expert on everyone else's weaknesses and an expert only on my strengths. And the seed goes into the ground. Pay attention to what you're thinking. Because what you're thinking is public knowledge to the only one it matters to. You got no secrets, man. None. But, but how about that? I want to be mindful of them, yes, because God can see them, but, but also because by not taking them captive, right? by not grabbing hold of them and going, no! Then I let them grow up a little bit more. I let the lion get stronger. God, help me. I feed him. I try to make him my pet. And it'll only be a matter of time, right? Doesn't, doesn't the Bible clearly say your sins will find you out? Will find you out. And that's if God loves you. He's going to out you. So may I always out myself more quickly. And then pay pay attention to your rhythms. Um, After my conversion, um, you know, people were trying to teach me how to follow the Lord. And they would talk about quiet time and how it always sounded like punishment. You know, you you get up, you sit, you know, I felt like there was quiet time. That's how people punish their kids. I I thought we could think of something better than that. Um, But here's what I can find about my own soul. Maybe, maybe we'll just be different. Um, I can tell I'm getting tired when I'm no longer running to the word of God and I'm no longer running to prayer, but I think I got it. That's how I know. That's, that's how I know I'm tired. I, I, I know I'm tired when I stop giving people the benefit of the doubt and I start being suspicious. I start realizing that I'm tired when I have no patience for certain people. In fact, there are people at the village church that are, hopefully they won't watch this, but uh, there are people at the village church that are a type of litmus test for how I'm doing with the Lord. I I don't know why you're giggling. I'm being straight. I don't know why you're giggling because I... I can tell, like if I see them and avoid them, that, that I know that because I'm in covenant with them, I have promised God and them that I would serve them, love them, and encourage them, and we've signed it. 
And we re-wrap it each year. And so I know that I'm in my flesh and I'm tired. And I'm like, no, can't do it. So why can't I do it? Why can't I do it? So see, that's, that's the question I want to dig into because the answers are almost always different. Why can't I do it? It's usually too much of me and an inability to see them how the Lord currently sees them. Isn't it funny that as you mature, you lose patience with immature? Isn't it ironic? That as you mature, you begin to grow weary of immaturity. God, I'm blown away by those early in my walk who are patient with me. Like, I just think if I met a 28-year-old like me right now, I would hate him. Like, he would just drive me, I'd just try to break his will. I think I would. I mean, I just think I would try to just pummel that dude, all right? Like an arrogant punk. And, and so, in, in the end, watch your rhythms. Watch how you react to people. Watch, this is all about being sober-minded. Now, the second thing here is endure suffering. Listen, I'm getting this letter from the Apostle Paul, and, and it's from Paul. It's not like uh, the letter to the church at Ephesus or to the saints at Philippi. This is to my beloved Timothy, verse 2. All right? One, two. And, and in this book, to this point, Paul just will not get off of suffering. It, Timothy's already got to be exhausted, all right? Ephesus is blowing up. There's all sorts of doctrinal messes. There's, he's already got to be exhausted. And Paul just won't stop with the suffering talk. Chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So, verse 1, I'd have been like, on it, check. Chapter 2, verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right? And then we're already in, now, now we're in chapter 4. And what does he say? Endure suffering. It seems, and this might sound crazy, it seems like difficulty is just going to be a part of this. That suffering, in some sense, is just going to be a part of this. But if we're going to lead faithfully to the end, we will endure suffering. Don't let it surprise you. It it just shouldn't surprise you. When you preach your guts out for 40 minutes and somebody sends you a four-page email about one sentence in an illustration that had nothing to do with the message, don't let it surprise you. When, when a group of deacons or elders or whatever all right, disagrees with where you're being taken and wants to war against you, don't let it surprise you. You're in good company. Now, I would do the hard work of seeing whether or not that type of rebellion is due to them not being lined up with the gospel or you not being lined up with the gospel. Not all push on lead pastors from their deacons and elders is bad push. Some of it is God-wrought push for the good of the people of that church and the protection of the idiot pastor. Do you think... Your day to be visited in the hospital isn't coming? Do you think all the days of your ministry, you will simply be the one that visits people in the hospital? 
Do you think your only role will be to walk into rooms where ministry needs to be done? Do you not believe that there's a day coming where people will come into your house to do ministry to you and your family? To be faithfully present for you and your family in your day of trouble? In your day of loss? Um, after the diagnosis of my cancer came out, one of the things I, I tweeted out because of some of the ridiculous things that were being said to me is, why not me? So dumb. Why, why, why not me? Like, what, what, you think God's got all his chips in my basket? It's absurd. Do you, like, you read your Bible, right? Guys die, and then it just keeps going. <laughs> like, you said, hey, Moses, you see that dude's funeral? A verse. Moses, and then Joshua. <laughs> I mean, there was just no, you know what, let's just press pause here. Let's do like seven chapters and just remember Moses' faithfulness. Let's recount the glory of Moses. No, it's just like he died on the mountain. Joshua, I mean, the, the servants go into the ground and the message moves on. Why not you? Why not me? There will be no hiccup in the kingdom of God at the loss of you or the loss of me. No one dies early. No one guaranteed, is guaranteed eighty. Endure hardship. Don't let it surprise you. See, one of the great mercies on my life is I was so, uh, I was really busy trying to get the village church that was so young and had no theological categories for loss and, and SIDS and, and children uh, dying of cancer and, and 23-year-olds drowning four days after their first child was born. Just no grid for that. And so i just thrown myself into trying to train them to endure suffering. And I just never, I mean, here, here's why I'm saying this to you. I just never thought God's getting me ready. I never thought it. Like it never, it was like, I've got to get these people ready. <laughs> As though I'm over here. These people, I've got to help them. <laughs> and in God's sweet providence and mercy, he was going, yeah, memorize that text, bro. Yeah, you consider that. You, you think about that. You're going to need this. Don't let suffering surprise you. It is coming for you. We don't feel as fragile as we are. I don't, even now. I don't feel fragile. I am. There's no one in this room whose life can't be rocked right now by your cell phone buzzing in your pocket. I mean, everything you're confident about could get rocked. Just a little buzz in your pocket. Think about how fragile you are. Like, we just live under this illusion of control. Don't be surprised by the day of trouble. But hear me, don't fear it either. So don't do that thing where you're like, oh gosh, let me just wait for the other foot to drop then because things are going good now. I guess any moment now, someone's going to destroy me. No. I'm saying don't be surprised when it comes, but you don't have to fear it. Our God is greater than the storm. Does he not? Does he not in some sense tell it when to blow and when not to blow? So it's always helpful for me to think on, dwell on, camp on the fact that God never panics. Because sometimes I freak out. I mean, sometimes like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do with this then? And how are you working this? And what's going to happen here? And, and I just, it does my heart good to just know God has never felt that. 
never felt panicked, never felt nervous, never wondered what to do, has never had to huddle up with the Trinity and figure anything out. He's just the sovereign king. He just rules and reigns. So don't be surprised, but don't be afraid. And then three, do the work of an evangelist. So this is spread the gospel. So if we're going to be faithful to the end, if we're going to be faithful to the end, he then says, do the work of an evangelist. Now, um, this is interesting. Do the work of an evangelist or spread the gospel. And this is interesting in regards to our rootedness to be faithful to serve the Lord until the end. Because we are prone to the distraction of getting off the mission of God and getting on to something else. And men who fall to the wayside are more often than not men and women who got distracted. See, because the mission of God does something, it anchors you in a way, and I think Guy was certainly uh, alluding to this er earlier, and then Aaron, thank you, brother, for just leading. I needed to get on my face for a bit, Um, and I even tried to say some of this last night, where I just kind of lay on the floor um, before I preach in a room like this, and just kind of consider Job 38 to the end of that book, and how helpless I am, and how I can't accomplish the things that my heart so desperately wants to see happen. Those desperations um, put into me by God himself. See, the mission will do that to you over and over and over again. Because I've won arguments with lost people and seen them not come to Christ. I have apologetically removed all hurdles and still have not seen them submit. And it makes me desperate and it makes me pray. And I have pled with the men and women of our church. And I have modeled via testimonies and baptisms and stories the effectual power of God and the heralding of the gospel to neighbors and coworkers, and seen so many of them unmoved that people they know and love are going to hell. It makes me desperate. And it anchors me to the Lord. Now, if we're just going to get into niche theology and start arguing about that stuff... Well, I'm not desperate about that at all. In fact, I'm pretty proud that I can whip you with a theological argument. I'm not desperate anymore. I'm proud. See, the mission makes me desperate because it's just impossible. I mean, seriously. Like, I can't even make people aware of their need. Lauren and I had neighbors, Rich and Martha. Uh, They're older, very much in love. One of the better marriages I've ever seen think they're Christian, go to church on Christmas and Easter. I don't know if that happens here, um, but, but that's when they go, Christmas and Easter. Swear they're Christians. We've had ongoing conversations with them, and he simply is not interested in more than that. I mean, he finally said that to me. He just said, you know what, Matt? I'm a Christian. I know what you're saying. I even hear what you're saying about the Bible. We love the Lord. I'm not interested. I don't want to talk about this anymore with you. Our daughters are married. They're doing well. I'm very much in love with my wife. We've got good money. In fact, we're going to about to put this house up for sale, not because of you, and we're going to move to a golf course. We're going to move to a golf course over on the other side of Dallas, and I'm going to just ride out the rest of my days, loving my grandchildren, loving my, right? I couldn't even make him want it. Couldn't even help him understand that there was more. Got to have the Holy Spirit for that. The mission that drives that. That's why we do the work of an evangelist. That's why we spread the gospel and we do it organically, which means preachers. Yes, a part of your job is to preach the gospel from the pulpit, but it is also your job to live the gospel in your neighborhoods. 
I, I have, and you can pray for me on this because I'm, I'm not bragging. I'm, I need God to help me. I, I have a deep frustration bordering on anger for those who are bold in the pulpit and cowards in their neighborhoods. Like that vibe feels like something's wrong there. Like why would you put that burden on your people that you refuse to carry? It is not just them that is to consider their neighborhoods, workplaces, and hobby stations as their evangelistic grounds. It is the pastor. We do the work of evangelism because it binds us to the Lord in a way that other things will not. And then the last one, and and I want to talk about this just for a minute, and then we're going to talk about the crown of righteousness. The last thing, number four, fulfill your ministry. I love fulfill your ministry. Here's why. Again, we live in a real dangerous day in that you have these devices and you can hear preachers and teachers from all over the world and you can see all these success stories. Right? Because you know who speaks at conferences? Not guys who faithfully led their churches and because their churches were stiff-necked, stubborn people, the church died. Like, so when I got to the village, it was uh, a Willow Creek Association, egalitarian, kind of weird First Baptist church. And, and man, we just got after it, and we turned it, and, and we kind of rearranged kind of philosophy and theology, and, and it blew up by the grace of God. Right? To this day, I don't quite understand all of that. And, and then people started going, hey, would you come speak at this? I don't think it was because I was a great commuter. I think it's because the village blew up. But, but what if I did the exact thing I did and killed the joint, right? We went from 160 to 40 faithful, Jesus-loving men and women. You think I'd be here right now? I would not. I'd be seen by the Lord as faithful. See, here, here's why I'm saying this. You need to fulfill your ministry. You are not the next anyone. You're not. If, if God needed, wanted... Leon's Crump in Melbourne, he'd be here. If God wanted, needed, desired Steve Timmis in Sydney, he would be here. He's not, you are. They're not, you are, which means to believe that you must be them in order to see that type of gospel impact in your city is an affront to the sovereign God who placed you there. He didn't place them, he's placed you there. He doesn't need them, me, he needs you wants you doesn't need god has no need he wants you let that settle in it is you that has been given the task of sharing the glory and light of the gospel to these dark places you fulfill your ministry yes 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 learn practices learn holiness learn pursuit learn those things all right Uh, you should be a lifelong learner But the Lord's placed you here. Fulfill your ministry. So I've oftentimes um, felt that one of the ways the Lord has bound me to himself is is via the success of the village. Because it all makes me really nervous. It it makes me feel like I, I don't actually know what I'm doing. Like when I'm writing my sermons uh, every week, I get the thought, man, a lot of people are going to hear this. That kind of creates a little panic in me for a second. Then I got to kind of get back down on the floor and go, okay, all right, Lord, 
A lot of people are going to hear this. Is this right? Like, okay, what's the akuo in the Greek is what I am hearing. Right, present active indicative. Okay, I know. Who knows who's going to listen to that and get some ridiculous email from some guy going, well, actually, that's third person plural. And that means, you know, so uh, I got to wrestle through that. No, fulfill your ministry. And look at me. Love your ministry. Love it. If it's hard, God wants it to be hard for your own good. If he gave you more, who's to say that you wouldn't spiral out of control and hate him? Love your ministry. Want more, but love where he's got you. Like Europe and even somewhat here. You get on my nerves. Oh, it's not a big church compared to Texas. We're not in Texas. In Australia, God does what he does. He's not panicked about this country. Not panicked about New Zealand. Not panicked about Europe. Not, not going, what am I going to do about the Middle East? He's just not in a panic. He's got good men, good women on the ground doing his will where he's drawing in the nets as he sovereignly desires. Do the work of your ministry. And then here's the climax of the text. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Anybody feel that ever? And the time of my departure has come. There are days where I'm looking forward to that one. Not every day, but I've had seasons in which I've thought, that'd be nice. No more labor, no more fears, no more wrestling with my flesh to be free of all of this. I wish I could say it was every day. It's not, it's just some days. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. And and okay, great, crown of righteousness. But listen to this. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. So uh, when I read that text, I'll tell you where uh, my heart goes and where I want my heart to always go. So for me, the, the crown sounds all right, but that the Lord is the one giving me, that face to face, he gets to put that crown on me. And my understanding of the scriptures, I don't want that crown, I want him. I throw it at his feet and worship him. Makes any wave that comes far more easy to bear. And it makes almost all sin if I'm doing the things that I've described before. Seen, like Owen said, as a dead and deformed thing and in no longer in any way calling out for my affection and embraces. Like I get to see him face to face. So the, the Bible says as Christians, we've got this inheritance coming, right? We've got resurrected bodies. That's going to be nice, right? Uh, you're a young crowd, but trust me, here in about another 15 years, you're going to love the idea of that resurrected body. <laughs> Um, we get new heaven and new earth. That's going to be unreal. Like, remember me talking about the majesty of the Andes? Well, according to the Bible, the Andes are broken. Like, that's not even what it's supposed to be. It's kind of a shadow of the majesty that it was intended to be. Sin busted it. There's a greater majesty than that. New heavens, new earth. That's going to be awesome. The wolf and the lamb will lie down together. Somebody jacked that up and put lion in the lamb. That's not what the text says. But lion and the lamb will lay down together? Does that mean we'll get to kind of pet and play with lion? Because I would like that. (laughs) Without fear of being killed. There's all sorts of things I want to kind of hang out with without fear of it devouring me. New heavens, new earth is coming. New body? 
new heaven and earth. But our reward is him. Because if we got the new body and we got um, our new heaven and new earth, but we didn't have him, then it wouldn't be worth it. Like he is the greater treasure. He is the greater reward. And if we'll root ourselves in these things, if we will endure suffering, if we will take every cap, every thought captive, if we will guard our hearts, if we will walk in these ways, then 10,000 years from now, nothing that we endured, nothing that we said no to, nothing that we fought to keep pure will feel like a loss, work, or toil in any way. And that before us is what will help us lead well to the end. And if not, we join the likes of Uzziah and grow proud to our own destruction. Let's pray.